Chapter Seventeen of the Dragon's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Dragon's Secret by Augusta Hule Seaman. Chapter Seventeen. Eileen explains. It was an amazed, bewildered, and sheepish group that faced each other in the light of the electric torch after the departure of the unknown man. Phyllis was the first to recover self-possession. "'Well, we might as well go indoors,' she remarked in her decided way. "'There's evidently nothing to be gained by staying out here in the storm.' The others, still too benumbed in mind to have any initiative of their own, followed her obediently. Only when they were at the door did Leslie arouse to the immediate urgencies. "'Do please be very quiet and not wake Aunt Marcia,' she begged. "'I'm afraid the effect on her would be very bad if she were to realize all that has happened here.' They entered the bungalow on tiptoe, removed their drenched wraps, and sank down in the nearest chairs by the dying fire. "'And now,' remarked Phyllis, constituting herself spokesman, as she threw on a fresh log and some smaller sticks, "'we'd be awfully obliged to you, Ted and Eileen, if you'd kindly explain what this mystery is all about.' "'I don't see why under the sun you had to come butting into it,' muttered Ted resentfully, nursing some bruises he had sustained in the recent fray. "'Please remember!' retorted Phyllis, that if I hadn't come butting into it, and Leslie and Rags, you'd probably be very much the worse for wear at this moment. That's so. Forgive me, old girl. You did do a fine piece of work, all of you. I'm just sore that the thing turned out so badly. But what I really meant was that I can't see how you got mixed up in it all, from the very beginning, I mean. That's precisely what we think about you, laughed Phyllis. We've felt all along as if it were our affair, and that you were interfering. So I think we'd better have explanations all around." "'Well, as a matter of fact, it's Eileen's affair, most of all, so I think she'd better do her explaining first. Ted offered as a solution of the tangle. They all looked toward Eileen, sitting cowered over the fire, and she answered their look with a startled gaze of her own. "'I—I I don't know whether I ought,' she faltered, turning to Ted. "'Do you think I ought?' "'I guess you'd better,' he declared. "'It's got to a point where these folks seem to have some inside information of their own that perhaps might be valuable to you.' How they got it, I can't think. At any rate, there'll be no harm done by it, I can vouch for that. So, just fire away. Thus adjured, Eileen took a long breath and said hesitantly, I, I really don't know just where to begin. A lot of it is just as much a mystery to me as it is to you. I think you all have heard that I have a grandfather who is very ill, in a hospital over in Branchville. He is the Honorable Arthur Ramsay of Norwich, England. He has been for many years a traveller, an explorer in China, and India and Tibet. Early this year he had a severe attack of Indian fever and could not seem to recuperate. So he started for England, coming by way of the Pacific and America. When he got to the Atlantic coast this last summer, someone recommended that he should try staying a few weeks at this beach. So he took a bungalow and spent part of the summer and autumn here, and thought he was much benefited. "'Do excuse me for interrupting,' exclaimed Phyllis. "'But was the bungalow he rented Curlew's Nest?' "'Why, yes,' hesitated Eileen, with a startled glance at her. "'It—it it was.' "'Then do you mind telling me how it was that the name was so different?' persisted Phyllis. "'Mrs. Danforth understood that she rented it to a Mr. Horatio Gaines.' "'Oh, that was because Grandfather didn't want it in his own name. Because, you see, he's a rather well-known person in England, and even over here, and he needed a complete rest.' with no danger of having to be interviewed, or called upon, or anything like that. So he had his man, Geoffrey Horatio Gaines, 
acquire the place and transact all the business here in his name. It saved Grandfather a lot of trouble, for Geoffrey simply took care of everything, and as Grandfather never went among people here, no one was the wiser. After he left the cottage, he expected to go to New York and remain there till he sailed for home, and he did go there for a few days, but his health at once grew worse, so he returned to the beach. Of course, the bungalow was closed by that time, so he took rooms at the hotel farther along. It was there that I joined him. I had come over with friends of mother's, earlier in the summer, and had been visiting at their summer camp in the Adirondacks, until I should join grandfather, and return to England with him. I hadn't been with him more than two or three days, when I realized that something had gone awfully wrong, somehow or other. Grandfather was worried and upset about something, and he began to watch his mail, and be anxious to avoid meeting anyone. He couldn't or wouldn't explain things to me, but had long interviews with his man, Geoffrey, who has been with him for years and years, and whom he trusts completely. At last, one awfully stormy night, about two weeks ago, Geoffrey disappeared, and has never been seen or heard of since. We can't imagine what has become of him. And the next day, Grandfather was so worried about him and the other troubles that a cold he had ran into a severe attack of pneumonia. Of course, it wasn't feasible for him to remain at the hotel, especially as it was soon to close, so he had himself taken to the nearest good hospital, which happened to be this one at Branchville. Since he didn't have Geoffrey to wait on him, he wanted to be where he could have the best attention and nursing, and as I could run his car, which Geoffrey had always done, I could easily get there to see him. Then, as you probably know, the hotel closed for the season, and the manager very kindly found me a place to stay, with Aunt Sally Blake in the village. She has been very good and kind to me, but I expect I've worried her a lot, not because I didn't care, but because I couldn't help it, and I couldn't tell her about things. But, oh, I've been so troubled, so fairly desperate at times. You cannot even guess the awful burden I've had to bear, and all alone, at least till I came quite by accident to know your brother Ted. He has helped me so much, but that is another part of the story. One night, Grandfather's fever was very high, and he was delirious. I begged his nurse to let me sit with him a while, and I heard him constantly muttering about the bungalow, and Geoffrey hiding something there, and it being safe at Curlew's Nest, and a lot more half-incoherent remarks of that kind. Next morning he was a little better and in his right mind again, so I asked him what he had meant by the things he had talked about the night before. And then he said, Eileen, I'll have to trust you with some of the secret, I believe, since you've overheard what you have. Perhaps you may even be able to help, and of course I can trust you to keep your own counsel, absolutely. There's been a very mysterious mix-up here, and it involves far more than you may imagine. In fact, it might even become an affair of international moment, if something is not found, and quickly, too. The gist of the matter is this. While I was in China last year, I had some informal correspondence with an official, very high in government circles there, concerning his attitude in regard to the province of Shantung. As he was inclined to be very friendly toward me at the time, he was just a little expansive and indiscreet, I think those were grandfather's words, in regard to his government's plans. Later, I think, he regretted this, and made some half-joking overtures to have his letters returned. But I pretended not to understand him, and the matter was dropped. As a matter of fact, I thought them too suggestive and important to my own government to part with them. It is these letters that are the heart of the whole trouble, Grandfather says. He heard nothing more about them till he came to stay at the hotel here. Then he received a very threatening letter, 
declaring that if this packet was not returned to the writer, serious consequences would result. It didn't say what consequences, but Grandfather suspected they might even go as far as an attempt on his life. But he was determined not to give up the letters. You see, they concerned a matter which might involve his own country with China, and he felt they should be delivered to his own government. Beside that, he is just stubborn enough not to be bullied into anything by threats. His man, Geoffrey, tried to persuade him to put the letters in a safe deposit vault in New York, but Grandfather says he is old-fashioned in some things, and doesn't trust even to safe deposit boxes, says he prefers to keep things he values in his own possession. He had the letters in a queer little bronze box that was given him years ago by the late Empress Dowager of China. It had a secret lock that was quite impossible to open unless one knew the trick. He carried this in his pocket, and slept with it under his pillow at night, and felt perfectly safe about it. Here Eileen paused for a moment of breath, and the two other girls glanced at each other guiltily, but they said nothing. Then Eileen went on. One night, just after I came, there was an attempt to rob him at the hotel. The attempt failed, because Geoffrey happened to be awake, and discovered someone prowling about Grandfather's sitting-room. Whoever it was escaped through the window without even his face being seen, and there was no trace of him later. Grandfather made Geoffrey keep the thing quiet, and not report it to the hotel, because he didn't want any publicity about the matter. But he decided then that it would be safer to have the thing hidden somewhere for a time, in some place where no one would dream of hunting for it. And it struck him that down by the bungalow where he had spent those quiet weeks, and which he supposed was all shut up and deserted, would be as unlikely a spot as any to be suspected of hiding such a thing. He supposed that the one next door, this one, was closed also, or I do not think he would have considered that hiding-place. So, the next night, which happened to be one when there was a very hard storm, he sent Geoffrey down to the bungalow, with the little box containing the letters. He did not wish him to take the car, as it might be too conspicuous, but had him go on foot. Geoffrey had found out, during the summer, that one could get into the place through a door at the side, by working at the hook through the crack with a knife-blade, and he intended to get into the cottage and conceal the box in some out-of-the-way hiding-place there. But here is where the mystery begins. Geoffrey set off that night, but has never been seen or heard of since. What has happened to him we cannot imagine, unless he was caught and taken a prisoner by someone concerned in getting those letters. If he had been killed, we would surely know it. Yet if he were alive, it seems as if we should have heard from him, somehow. He was a most devoted and faithful and trustworthy soul, so we are sure that something must have happened to him, that he is being detained somewhere. Grandfather is quite certain that he is guarding the secret of that box, somehow, and that it would be best to wait till he comes back, or sends us some word. What Grandfather asked me to do was to run out here in the car some day, and if there was no one about, to scout around and see if I could discover any clue to the mystery, without attracting attention. He supposed, of course, that the beach was by that time entirely deserted. I came out the very next day, but found to my disgust that the cottage next door was occupied by you, as I now know. But I felt it would not be wise to be seen about here in the daytime. So, without saying anything to Grandfather, who would be awfully upset if he knew it, I determined to run out about ten o'clock that night, and scout around when you people would probably be in bed. And here is where Ted comes into it. I got here that night as I had planned, found no one about, and tried the experiment of getting into the side door, as Grandfather had explained. But I found it very difficult. In fact, 
quite impossible for me. And while I was fussing with it, I was suddenly startled by a low voice right behind me, inquiring very politely what I was trying to do. It was Ted here, who had been out for a stroll, and happened to catch a glimpse of me at this very peculiar occupation, and naturally, thinking I was a burglar, had come up unobserved to find out about it. You can just imagine what an awful position it was for me. I did not know what to say or what to do. I know that, legally, I had no business there, and if he were inclined to make a fuss about it, he could have me arrested. I literally almost went out of my mind at that moment. But I guess something must have made him feel that I wasn't really a lady burglar or anything of that sort, for he just said very kindly, "'If you are in trouble, perhaps I can help you.' I didn't see how he could possibly help me, unless he knew the whole story, and I thought I ought not to tell anyone that. But, unless I did, I was certainly in a very terrible position. So I suddenly made up my mind it would have to be done, for something made me feel he was honourable and trustworthy, and that the secret would be safe with him. What made me feel all the more sure was that he mentioned that he was staying up the beach at his father's bungalow, and had happened to be out for a walk and had seen me there. I know he said it to make me feel easier, and that everything was all right. So I told him as much as I could of the story, and when he had heard it, he said, I happen to know all about opening that door, because I know the people who own the cottage very well. Perhaps you had better let me try. I said I'd be only too glad to, and he had the door unfastened in a moment. Then he told me to go in and examine the place all I wished to, and he would watch outside. If I needed any help, I could call, and he would come in and do what he could for me. Well, I went in, and examined the whole place with my electric torch. But I could not discover a single thing, except that one of the bricks in the fireplace had been partly loosened, and a broken knife-blade was in the corner of the chimney-place. It was the only thing I could see to show that possibly Geoffrey had been there. I thought the knife-blade looked like one I had seen him use. But as I didn't see a sign of the bronze box, I knew it was useless to stay any longer. So I came out. Ted fastened the door again, went with me to the car, which I had left down the road, and offered to give me any further help he could at any time. He promised to keep the secret from everyone, and said that he would make an even more thorough search over Curlew's nest if I wished because he had better opportunity to do so. Of course I agreed to that, and went back to Aunt Sally's. Two days later, Ted saw my car going along one of the back roads near the village, signaled to me, and told me that, the day before, he had caught you girls, coming out of Curlew's Nest, and that you acted rather guilty and refused to explain what you had been in there for. He told me that you might possibly suspect something, and to steer clear of you if we should happen to encounter each other, as it is always likely that people will in this town. He described what you both looked like, so that I couldn't fail to know you. And, sure enough, I met you both that very morning in Miss Selby's little store, and I expect, you think, I acted in a perfectly abominable manner. I just hated to do it, for I liked the looks of you both, but I felt I must take no chances. Ted also told me that he had been in Curlew's nest the night before, and had gone over the place very carefully once more but had found nothing except a string of beads that had been torn from the fringe of my girdle that other night, and had been lying on the floor. I remember that the girdle caught when I was looking under one of the bureaus. He also gave me the broken penknife blade to keep. As he said, it was best to leave nothing around there that anyone else could discover and use as a clue. A day or two later I met you, Phyllis, at Aunt Sally's, and she would insist on introducing us, though I could see you were no more anxious to make the acquaintance 
after the way I'd acted, than I was. But I encountered Ted again that afternoon, and he said he had hunted me up to tell me he had news, and also a plan that he wanted to suggest. He said he had noticed, during the last two or three days, a strange man who seemed to haunt the beach, just a short way off, and out of sight of the two bungalows. The man seemed to be a very ardent fisherman, and an expert one, too, but Ted had noticed that he kept a very sharp lookout toward the bungalows, when he thought no one was around to see. He suspected that perhaps this man had something to do with the mystery. The plan he suggested was that I get acquainted with you girls, after all, in some way that seemed the most natural, but without letting you know that I was also acquainted with him. And when I had done so, I had better offer to take you all out for a long drive in the car, and keep you away a good while, and give him a chance to see what this man was up to, if anything. The getting acquainted was easy, and you all know how I managed that, and also the ride a day or two later. When I was returning from the ride that night at dusk, Ted signaled me from the bushes near Curlew's Nest, jumped into the car, and told me what had happened in the afternoon. He had gone off to the village first, then hurried back, slipped up here by way of the creek, and hidden himself in a clump of rushes across the road. Just as he had suspected, he saw his suspicious fisherman sneak up here after a while, scout around the outside of the bungalow, disappear into it for a time by the side door, come out, apparently empty-handed, stare at the outside again for a long time, and then at your bungalow, and finally disappear. But that was not all. He waited where he was a few minutes, thinking perhaps the man might come back, and he was just about to come out, when along came an automobile with two men in it, which stopped directly in front of Curlew's nest. He could not see their faces, for they had slouch hats pulled down far on their heads. They got out and walked about a bit, evidently to see if any one was around. Then, thinking themselves alone, they hurried up to the bungalow, worked at the side door, and finally got in. Shortly after, they came out again, and walked down to the beach, where he could not see them. Then they came back, got into the car, and drove off. By that time it was growing so late that he concluded he would stay where he was, and wait for me to come back, which he did. Before he left me we had a slight breakdown, and in helping me fix it he hurt his hand. But that same night, long after midnight, he got into Curlew's nest again, to see if he could find out what had happened, and he found a very strange message left on the table, a typewritten warning to the one who had taken the article, as it was called, from its hiding-place, to return it, and underneath a printed note in pencil, saying it would be returned. He thought, probably, the first man had left the typewritten part, and the other two had printed the answer underneath. That was all he could make of it. It was all very mysterious, but while we couldn't make much out of it, at least it showed that something concerning the affair was going on, and that the place must be closely watched. Ted volunteered to keep this watch. Meanwhile, Grandfather had a very bad turn, and I was with him constantly. He was terribly depressed over the whole affair. Even his doctor, who knows nothing about this, said he was evidently worrying about something, and if the cause of worry were not removed, he doubted the possibility of recovery. Tonight I stayed with him later than usual, and in returning actually did lose my way in the storm. But when I at last discovered where I was, I knew that it was not far from here, and could not resist the temptation, to come over and see if anything was happening. I found Ted also scouting around, and suddenly we realized that someone else was on the ground too, though we could not tell who, in the darkness and rain. But Ted thought it very dangerous for me to be out there, 
so he made me come in here, as I did. And I need not tell you what happened after that. Eileen ceased speaking, and Phyllis had just opened her lips to say something when there was a knock at the door. All four jumped nervously, but Ted got up and went to open it. To their immense alarm, the opened door revealed the figure of the man with the limp. End of chapter 17